Mark Gellard, welcome to the ATP podcast. Lovely to have you on. Candy, thanks a lot. Happy to be here. <laughs> uh, just give us a little bit of a synopsis of how you got your coaching career started. I played college tennis, so, um, you know, wasn't good enough to play pro and got lucky break being able to work as a hitting partner for Martina Hingis. And that kind of got me in my foot in the door in the women's game, which is where I still am now. So I think uh, it was a good start getting as, a, as being a hitting partner is a great way to get in. I get asked a lot, actually, by other coaches, how do you start? I think hitting as a hitting partner, volunteering yourself, making yourself available to help other people is a good way to get going. You said that was a lucky break. That sounds like a very lucky break to get one of the best <laughs> yeah. players that ever lived. How did that work? That was a lot of luck from uh, and being a hustler. I, I <laughs> got lucky to meet Abigail Tordorf, who was working at Octagon at the time, and she... I think I, I think she just was trying to get rid of me and said she'll be in touch and actually ended up needing someone to hit with Martina and asked if I could start work the next day pretty much. So I met her down at Wimbledon the next day and yeah, we started hitting. It was just supposed to be for, for that tournament and we ended up almost losing first round to Naomi Cavaday. I think we, would, we saved about three or four match points in the first round and then she snuck through that and then won another, maybe won another round and then I think we lost to Laura Granville. And then um, she asked me to come on and do the rest of the summer, which was which was really a nice experience for me. So she didn't win the tournament, but you still got no, hired? No, I mean, it was almost one of the worst efforts <laughs> she's ever had, and I still got hired, so I was lucky there. But she, um, that was a good lesson, because I don't know if I realized how hard it was going to be, how hard she worked opened my eyes. I mean... And eventually, I think one of the reasons we stopped was I couldn't keep up with her physically in terms of her practice demands were... It was four or five hours of hitting a day and two hours in the gym a day, every day. I mean, she was a machine. And that started, I think, um, when she was young. Because I remember there was a Hall of Fame advert in the United States. And she was talking about when she was 13, playing six to eight hours a day, or at least uh, six to eight hours a day of tennis activities. So she was hardcore right from the start. I mean, I thought I was in decent shape. I just finished <laughs> college. I was in okay shape, ran a lot. I mean, we'd start off in the gym for 45 minutes of intervals at 7.30 in the morning. Then we'd get onto the court for a couple hours, lunch, two more hours on court, maybe three, and then over to the beach in San Diego or wherever it was we were at that time, on the beach for an hour running, come back, light weight in the gym, eat and go to... I just... It was, it was insane. How does that work when you start with someone who has such high standards and then obviously your relationship at some point ends and you move on to someone else, they're very unlikely going to be as good as her. Is it hard for the next person for you to understand that they might not have quite the same work ethic? Yes, and I think that's why I needed to see it so that I could then help the players that I had next to let them know that you think you're working hard, but you're not. <laughs> you're really not working that hard. Also, another person I work for, Alan Ma a lot um, in China and, and in ITA in Florida. And he really, you know, he always told me, he said, listen, it's 24 hours in a day. You, you sleep eight, so that leaves 16 hours. So, you know, you say to me, you work hard where well, you were on court four hours a day. That's still another 12 hours there left. So, you know, you think you work hard, but it's, um, I suppose it's, yeah, subjective. But she was really, she was a great person for me to see. And she was, um, her work ethic was second to none and on top of that she already had a lot of talent and tennis IQ she didn't have the big power game but she already understood the game better than I think any of the players now really would you put that down to Melanie Molitor her mum who's also coached and has since coached Belinda Bencic and many others yes I would think that's probably where she got she but she like um you know I talk with Ian now with Magda and we say 
Martina was a tennis player from the moment she woke up in the morning till the minute she went to bed. And I think a lot of players now, it's, you know, they, the, the parents come to me and for a lesson. They say, I want to make my girl, my daughter, number one in the world. Make her number one. Yeah, but for these two hours from nine to 11, and then they leave... And they're not a tennis player anymore. They go to their Instagram and they're at home and they're not thinking about tennis. Martina, we, we, every lunch, dinner, breakfast we had together, we were thinking about tennis and talking about tennis and video. You know, it was, it's, it was her life. Did she anticipate the ball as well naturally? She always seemed like she was this psychic likability where she knew the ball was going. Was that uh, an ingrained trait or something that she learned, do you think? Yeah, I'm, I... I'm not sure I love that argument of, I don't think it's, I think everything is learnt. Mm. I think the environment has a lot to do with it. And I think she, from when I talked to her, she grew up on a court. And when you're watching that much tennis as she did, even if she's not playing, she was watching. And I just think you learn. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I don't, she she had obviously some natural talents physically. But um, yeah, I think that a lot of it was learnt and well coached. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you worked in China. I'd love to know about that and your experience and what you learned from going out there. What age were you when you went to China? I was 30. So I went out there. Alan Ma, who had had an academy in Florida, he went back to China and asked me to come out there. This was about 2015. And uh, he had an academy called Star River, which is in Guangzhou, Mm -hmm. just next to Hong Kong. And so when I went out there, uh, he had a few players there that were already established. Magda was one of them. Uh, Zarina Diaz, Pong Shui was there, um, Zheng Sai Sai. There was a few, and then we had a lot of other players coming in and out, and he had a lot of sort of what I would call transition players in that six, seven, eight hundred ranking trying to make it up. So, yeah, went out there, and, yeah, that was a, a great experience there. Magda, who you talk about, is Magda Lynette, the Polish player. Why was Magda playing in China? She'd met Alan at a tournament. She'd been struggling with the financial part of training and traveling, and Alan was... You know, he's a guy that's always helped players. And he told her, listen, come out and train in China for free and I'll take care of your, your costs there so you can have a coach paid for. And she was she was there with a coach at the time, Izzo Zunich, who did a great job with her, uh, really laid a lot of foundations for her. And then Alan was, was nice enough to let them come and train and that was how we met, really. So a lot of it is down to him. Sounds like the perfect situation from you. You've worked with one of the best players that ever lived in Martina Hingis. Now you've got a mentor in Alan Marr, who's one of the best coaches that ever lived. So you really hit the jackpot. Do you think that was luck? There's a lucky component to it, but I think what I did well was that I, I hustled. I was always looking, how can I get better and uh, what can I do better than the other coaches and you know for example I was lucky enough actually to work with Melinda Zink as well a Hungarian girl and her husband at the time was a fitness trainer and he he really encouraged and pushed me to learn about the strength and conditioning side be educated and so he got me to to do a lot of exams and certifications and this to improve that because especially you know if you're working like I am now with a top 100 player they have resources but when you're working with these players that are ranked two three four hundred they can't afford a fitness trainer and a strength. You know, you have to be able to do a bit of it, all of it. So it was just constantly trying to be better at everything to, to add value to your player. Did you also always have this growth mindset? Someone who wanted to learn, wanted to get better in their own skin? Uh, honestly, yeah. I, that was, I think that's, it's been one of my strengths and one of my weaknesses as well because I always feel that I could have done more. 
So sometimes, you know, I think it's not, I wouldn't say it's ego. It's more that I just feel maybe sometimes I want to control everything too much because you feel like whenever Magda loses, I always think what I should have done better, what I could have done differently. But I think at the elite of anything, whether it's business, sports, you have to have a little bit of that mentality. You're working in an elite performance environment. Do you see other coaches that um, you see are doing well or not so well? Are you talking to them and learning and looking at the data and, and trying to get what they have, the information that they can pass on to you? Yeah, I think tennis is quite far behind, actually, in a lot of these things. You know, and I've, I've, I'm a big hockey fan, so I watch a lot of their... I even watch their coaching conferences to see where they're looking and what they're thinking of the future. Um, and I think that as coaches, we don't use half of the resources that we should be using. And, and a lot of it is, is how well do we interpret the information? Because I think all, you know, there's so many things available now, statistics and information, but it's also the interpretation is the key. And that's the interesting thing with coaches. You can have 10 great coaches sit down here, look at the same stats and say 10 different things and uh, extrapolate different information from that. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something I try to, to do. So with the data, how do you extrapolate the best information? What do you look to most? It's a good question. I, one of the things I've done differently with Magda the last two years is focusing less on the opponent, to be honest with you, in matches. We're trying to focus a little bit more on what we do well. I think that statistics are good because they do two things. They tell you what almost always happens and what hardly ever happens. They're kind of things that you can lean on them for information and, and, and lean on them, but that's it. They're going to, you keep them in the back of your brain. So when Magda plays in the back of her mind, she knows that maybe uh, Garcia is going to serve this way at this moment. But that can't be at the front of her mind because then you lose focus on what's important, I think. I think that's just in the back of your mind. And I find also I found with men and women that women prefer to know the strengths and weaknesses of their opponent, whereas men want more of a game plan. Okay, so now tell me what do I do with that information to, to beat the opponent? That's something I've felt has been a difference in the men and the women. And you mostly work with women uh, professional players. Would you be open to work with men? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, tennis is tennis. It's mm. the same sport. I, I just, I think once you get into the, you know, in the women's side, it's easier because you, you meet the other female players. They get to know you a little bit. So it's just, but I really enjoy, uh, yeah, I really enjoy being on the women's side. There is quite a lot of coaching conveyor belt likeness, isn't there, on the women's tour in particular. The men tend to stick with a coaching team for a lot longer than the women do. Yeah, I don't think the system is working well, to be honest. I think that there's a big issue with the quality of coaching. I don't have the answer on how to improve because, because in other sports, whether it's football, hockey, soccer, there's certifications or, or, or um, qualifications, I should say, that are required in order to get out there. We don't have that in tennis. Anyone can do it. I mean, how can you argue with Richard Williams? You can't say, well, he didn't take his USTA exam, so he can't be a coach. I mean, he's, the, he's got the best records of any of us, but it's tough. And I think uh, it's, it's musical chairs with the coaches. I mean, they're changing from player to player, and I don't think it's a good look for the sport either. And it's probably not a good look, is it, for the player? Because you start to get a relationship, you start to get some information, building up chemistry. As you know, that's very important. And then suddenly you're discarded and looking for the next one. It seems to be a waste, a waste of time. It, it is. I mean, I, I'll give Magda a big credit. A few years ago, we were 
we've maybe been working a year and a half and we went through a run of, I think we lost seven or eight first rounds in a row. At big tournaments, it was Rome and Madrid and Strasbourg and Paris. And, you know, and you start to think as a coach, you know, are you doing something wrong? Um, and are they losing confidence? But she, I, I remember we sat down and she said, no, I feel great. I, we have been close in all eight matches. There were three sets with Cornet here and three sets here with Rebecca Peterson. And you're right there. But most people don't have the discipline or the patience to stick with it long enough. What makes me happy for her is that she's being rewarded for her maturity. Because I don't think many girls or many guys either have that level of patience or maturity. And you said there that uh, you, Magda didn't lose hope in you after going and losing seven first rounds. Yeah. Were you thinking maybe I'm not the right coach absolutely. for her? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But I think what what you know as a coach that I did try to do was let her know and show her that we were doing everything we could you know and I, I we having issues with the serve I, I called the coach I know that's really good with mechanics of the serve he came in and helped us out I had a company in California doing the tennis analytics for us uh, the statistics for that and uh, she lost in I believe it was our first round she lost the Halep at the French but it was in three sets. It was a great match. And again, you go, well, you're still a loss. But she saw that we were, we were moving in the right direction. And that's the thing. You know, it's not linear. It doesn't always, doesn't necessarily mean that the next week is going to be better. But it, it goes up and down. And I think you've got to be, that's what these guys like Rafa have done so well. And even Novak and Roger, they stuck with a team for so long that you're going to go through the ups and downs, you know. You just have to realize that that is going to happen and keep the trust in your team and that's not always easy is it when there's big prize money there's points on the line maybe you've got an agent or someone who's saying well you know Magda maybe you know Mark's not the right guy for you do you run into a few problems like that absolutely it's it's a dog eat dog world I mean these these players have got a lot of people talking to them all the time and, and even the questions in the media they get they've got agents like you said fam- there's a lot of pressures and I mean in the last few years, there's been so many weeks where she's lost a lot of money when she's, you know, and you're still getting your paycheck every week as a coach and she's down 10 grand that week because of flights and all that stuff. So it's not, it's not easy for them. And that's why I think that it's nice to see when they're rewarded, the ones that do it the right, for me, the right way, because it is a team and you have to buy in that as a team, you're going to go through ups and downs. And that's, I think on, on the women's side where it's a problem right now because because also I can jump correlation isn't causation I can jump off from Magda and go to another player and this other player suddenly goes and wins Wimbledon that wasn't necessarily because of me <laughs> timing is you know it, so I think that that's you know suddenly everyone thinks I'm a genius because of this girl wins a Grand Slam well no not necessarily. what about the guys that have done the work with her for the last five years they were the ones that put the foundation in and I think that's um, yeah an important part Talk a little bit more about the money issue because it's easy, isn't it, to say, oh, well, they've won $5 million in career prize money. They must be very wealthy. But you're right. If you go to, say, Indian Wells in Miami, you've booked up for a coach. Uh, You're using Ian Hughes as a consultant. You mentioned Ian earlier. So that's two of you. And then you've got other people on board that are also helping on the periphery as well. So they're all getting paid. And then Magda goes to Indian Wells, for instance, gets injured. Well, you've booked all the hotel rooms. I know they're covered in part by the tournament, but you've booked everyone. You're paying salaries, and then you've got no income, and that is a problem. It is a problem. It's it's tough because so with the way it's set up now, the WTA doesn't hire the players. They're independent contractors. 
who then hire coaches. So we're independent contractors to the independent contractors. So the players usually, once they become a full member of the WTA, which has some um, requirements, your ranking has to be of a certain level, you have to play a certain number of events, you then can pay your membership fee. Uh, which gives you access to certain things, you know, but then you have to pay your insurance. They have to pay for their insurance, which is expensive every year um, for the health insurance. If they get injured, obviously their money stops, their income is gone, um, but they're paying me regardless of whether or not they win. So if we go to a 250 event, she loses first round. I need to check what the prize money is for that, but it's probably less than $5,000. So if you figure out what she's paying me, what she's paying Ian, just salary. Then you factor in the hotel rooms for that week. She's got three rooms right now with Ian and I and then herself. Um, Usually tournament pays for the player's room for as long as they're in the tournament with a minimum of five nights for, say, uh, $250. So that room is covered. So she's paying for two rooms. They were each, say, $200 a night then you're looking at flights and then you've got to cover some food bills here and there. Food isn't so bad, but that adds up as well. Racket stringing as well. Racket stringing for her, definitely going to be included. And there's there's always those other little expenses that come into it, you know, um, here and there. There's just, you know, you might need taxis and stuff to places the tournament doesn't take you. I mean, baggage every week on the flights, you're always paying overweight stuff. So, you know, for sure, last week she lost $5,000. You know, and that's where the, the, the thing is, is the, the, the players are relying on the big tournaments to cover the, their year, really. But, you know, that you look at the NBA or the NHL, for example, they're not incurring the costs that the players are. They're not paying for the coach. They're not paying for the hotels and the trips and the flights and the food. That's all covered for by the team, whereas Magda is in charge of all of that stuff. And, you know, something that's as a, from a coaching side is tough is that I'm paying for my health insurance. And if I get sick, I can't come to work. If I don't work, I don't get paid. You know, this is, we're paid, most of, most of the coaches on the tour are paid weekly. So if I don't, if I do get sick next week and I can't come to work, I don't get paid. And I'm paying like a regular person would pay health insurance. So yeah, that's the tough part of this job. It's, and there's no WTA insurance for the coaches because you think that would be introduced. We've talked about it. So they have, they offered some sort of travel insurance during covid and they've put offered a program now that covers certain things but to tell you the truth it's not anything more attractive than what you can buy in the open marketplace so it's yeah i i, I really hope that eventually they put us they offer the option of getting what the players have because it would be uh it'd be great but right now for different reasons and like i said we're the way they see us is we don't work for them mm-hmm. we don't work for the wta we work for the player and the player is an independent contractor they have no reason really to help us but i think that it's in their interest that they keep the coaches healthy and happy because we're the person that's with the player the most so we're the ones that are going to be able to keep an eye on the player's welfare which and is improve the product essentially exactly improve the product i think um i do think at some point they're going to have to figure out how we can be better structurally better and make this a little bit more I, I don't know how to say it best, but I think that right now there's definitely we can improve the whole way that it's operating. And I think there'll be some changes. You see, you know, Magda's actually on the WTA uh, council. council so she's council. doing that, which is great. And I think they really, they work hard. People don't know how much time, and I didn't know until Magda went on it like a, a, about a year ago, how much time they spent. They spend hours and hours doing 
phone calls and working on deals and it's not easy as coaches we I, you know we sit in the locker room with the other coaches and we talk about why don't the tournaments do this and why don't they do that but it's not as easy as people think to just make things happen it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of discussion and a lot of uh, communication and obviously we were talking about the team events well the team players are paid aren't they if you're playing for Liverpool or West Ham or whatever it is you've given a, a salary you know is coming in whereas for a player or a coach if you are sick or injured you're not getting that money in has there been a time in your career where you have had that and been injured or ill and couldn't go out on tour I was I was a little bit unfortunate when I first after I stopped working with Magda the first time I worked with Shelby Rogers who great American player and I got quite sick I was in the hospital for about five well it was about three weeks and then again for a couple more and you know, during that time I was, you know, with Shelby, I had health insurance in the States with a $10,000 deductible. So I was out $10,000. But when the bill came, the total bill was $330,000. $330, and that's crazy. But, you know, laying there and when I was sick during that time, you, there's a concern because you're not working. So you're not making money. You're spending money in the hospital. And, um, that's when you have concerns and I think I know that the, the players have some options where they can pay for is it almost not life insurance but the one where you can actually if she does get injured she's able to actually take a salary out right. for a certain period of time short term disability yeah so I think disability. Shelby actually had told me she was able to possibly get something with this but don't quote me on that I, I wouldn't want to be wrong but I know that because she missed a long time with knee surgery she was out for a long time it's stressful for them because if you work for the hockey team, if you play for a hockey team, they're going to cover all those expenses. You keep taking that salary and everything's okay. And this is this is a tough part for players. Yeah, and of it course really the comeback as well, they, the rehab and the recovery. And while you're coming back, everybody else is still playing, aren't they, and getting better, so it's hard to keep up. Yeah. You've obviously coached quite a few women on the WTA tour. Is it awkward being around them later when you've broken up and you're working with a new player? I think uh, <laughs> if you speak to some of the players I've worked with, I'm sure they, some of them will have some nice things to say and some <laughs> might not do. I think time heals everything, though. You know, it's, 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 there's always an awkwardness from both sides. From my side, from their side, there's an awkwardness. Um, but I think it's life in any relationship. Um, I haven't yet worked with anyone that... I've had any issues with this just sometimes there's a connection issue personalities but yeah it's it's definitely a unique situation even even on the tour you know you're sharing the gym with the players you used to coach or you work with now you know in all the other sports it's, it's divided you have your room and my room and that's it um, in tennis it's weird that you're, you're really you know and especially because like you said on the women's side they're changing coaches every week so I mean I've had I've had players this last year, we had a, a, some situations where coaches asked me, do you want to practice tomorrow? I said, sure, 10 o'clock, perfect, I'll book it, done. Show up in the morning, and the girl that's already on the court, I'm like, no, we have this court now. No, no, we're hitting with you. And I go, oh, geez, I didn't know, because last week I saw you with the other coach. So, oh, I see. You, you know what I mean? It's that oh, You didn't even know that the, you thought you were hitting with player X, but that coach in the last five days has changed the player Y, <laughs> so he turns up and you, you didn't even know about it. Yeah, so that does happen as well. And I presume it's important not to burn your bridges with a player who you might be breaking up with. You know the writing's on the wall, but it's important as a coach to be pretty nice uh, just because you just never know if you may be working with that person again or somebody yeah. she knows well. Yeah, I think you always want to do things amicably um, if possible. 
but at the same time, I don't like the idea of hanging on to jobs for money. Mm. Or if you feel that this is not helping the player and it's not what you want, it's better to end it because it's just not, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm just taking a paycheck. I don't feel right doing that. The tennis world is so small, isn't it, that you're going to come across someone you know or someone they know, separated, once removed, etc. It's so small. <laughs> it's so small. You have to be so careful because I think the one thing that I try to remember that is the most important thing is my reputation. That's what I'm trying to preserve, as the players are, and rightly so. But you hope that you can act with enough integrity. And I've been doing it for a while now. That coaches like Ian that's helping me now with Magda, you you know, the, the, the coaches know usually amongst themselves who the right, you know, who the good guys are. And um, you try to keep an eye out for each other. And, you know, we have a group chat with a few of us on there. And when when opportunities come up with players that are looking for a, for a coach, you know, you immediately can, can let them know and help each other out a little bit. Um, you, like me, has played uh, US college tennis. And you know the opposing coaches who like to get under your skin quite a lot. They might, might be really good men or women off the court, but on the court, they've got that other side to them. And you can see they're trying to rile up your player a little bit. But you know they're good people, but yeah. they're trying to get their player over the line. Has that ever happened? Yeah, it happens a lot, and it's something I'm not good at. <laughs> I, uh, first of all, I don't think that the one rule is that you can't, as a coach, talk to the opposing player. I should never have... I shouldn't, you know, during a match, I should never be talking to the opponent or giving them any crap, so to speak, and mm. they shouldn't be doing it to my player. Um, but you know the ones, you know the guys that are going to pull the tricks. I think the best thing is you prepare your player for it so they're not surprised by it. Um, that one, I'd, you're probably better asking someone else on that one because that's not <laughs> one sure I've mastered. I'm sure there's been a few things that have come yeah, up there that you've seen, perhaps not done, hopefully. I'm sure you haven't done any of yes, this. Yes, I, I think I have, I have a, an issue with players and coaches that intentionally bend the rules or, or, or consistently bend the rules I think is I think everyone at some point uh, you know has coached when we're not allowed to coach I'll tell you right now I've done that I don't think there's a coach that if they were honest here and you know Patrick everyone has an opinion on Patrick Moratoglu what he did with Serena I don't know if I would have admitted it right there on the camera, but I think he did nothing that most of us don't do on a weekly basis, which is why they've now opened it up and said, you know what, we're going to allow coaching from the side of the court because everyone's doing it. You Are know? you happy with that decision? Think it's the yeah, right one? For, yeah, for me, I think so. I wish they would bring back the on-court coaching, which is funny because a lot of the coaches that I'm friends with, I talk to, don't like it. I like it. I think that it's... It's interesting for the, some fans, but I think that it's, you know, look, like we just said, these players are paying out of their own pocket for coaching. Why can they not have access to the coach that they're paying for out of their own pocket during a match? I mean, golf, they have a caddy walking the whole course with them. That's an individual sport. People like to claim that argument of individual sport. Boxing, every round, they sit down in the chair, they get treatment, they have the coach there giving them some advice. Why are we not allowed to? And I think the players that say they don't like it, that's fine. Don't use it then. But there are players that like it. And in college, that's why so many men, especially, and some women, but especially on the men's side, are coming out of college and doing well because they were coached. Ben Shelton, his dad was Brian, was Brian, the coach, yeah. of, his coach of Florida. And he, I think he coached his son during when his son won the NCAAs and when he won the clinching match playing. I think he was playing four or five for them. That's the correct. First or no, second I think it was year. number four. Yeah, and he won the clinching <laughs> match. For his dad, 
but his dad was able to be on the bench and coach him through it. That's a valuable experience or an invaluable experience that I'm sure made him a better player and helped him get here. If we didn't have coaching in college tennis like we do, I, I, I don't think the product would be the same. And you're right, in football and BA, they've got the coaches right on the sideline sparking instructions, haven't they? In tennis, you're never going to want to do that after every point, but a little come on or, you know, go to the back on or maybe use the slice. A lot of coaches I've spoken to don't like that they were filmed or mic'd up during the on-court coaching. Because so they I can't swear? <laughs> I think probably that. I have my opinion. I think a lot of them don't, know, uh, don't feel comfortable showing uh, that maybe they don't know what... I, I think that there's some coaches that feel that it could be exposing them mm. but I'm fine with that if I get exposed I get exposed but I think I said well maybe then we'd remove the mics or maybe even some of them said they don't it, it was a little frustrating that you would have to run around the back of the court and get on and that can be difficult so what about I think World Team Tennis did it for a while literally a headset that the players have access to once a set during the changeover they just pick it up so the coach would stay where they are Stays sitting with, down exactly and, and then there's have a, a headset. Chat. You know, literally, I pick it up like the football coaches have. It's a headset, and I can talk to her through that. Hmm. It's an option. It's just one idea. There's lots of other ways it could be done. But I think, um, for me, I do think that there was there were some matches that Magda probably was able to turn around, not because of anything genius I said, but you can kind of, they can get it out, their thoughts. You can maybe act as a... A bouncing board and they you know and, and I'm sure there's matches that she probably was going to win and I came on and lost for her but <laughs> but it's you know I think it's good for the sport and I think that even if she lost that match she got better mm. from being having access to information you know and we um, see a lot of players don't we writing notes down and having a look at their book they've obviously discussed with their coach sort of three or four pointers is that something you've ever done yeah Magda has so we printed out a list and we laminated it and she's got it in a bag of <laughs> I love that I, I make it very just in case it rains fancy it's it's, <laughs> it's waterproof um that she has some some sort of key phrases for her um, words, cues that she, you know, that resonate with her. Um, we played a girl, Contreras Gomez, at Wimbledon last year, first round. And I've forgotten her first name. I feel bad, but she she came out of college, and she writes a book, literally at the at the changeover in every changeover, and she writes and she writes, and that's her way of doing it. Um, I think Ian said to me, um, Ian said to me, uh, if you'd watched. Um, you know, Jimmy Connors, um, when he played, he didn't, during the changeovers, he would actually crowd watch because he felt that he was so focused during the, ma the, the games that during the changeover, mm -hmm. that's actually the time where he needed to not be focused. He needed to distract himself a bit right. and look at the people dancing or laughing <laughs> because you can't maintain complete focus for two hours. You need to have those moments where you just let yourself disappear or, or for a few minutes. So I think... Um, yeah, I think it's uh, different ways of doing it, but I like the, the coaching idea. Gilles Savara has come on the ATP podcast and talked about how he handles the nerves of watching Daniil. He said he, he writes continuously and he, at home he's got books of uh, notes and things like that. How do you handle watching uh, Magda on court, particularly when things aren't going so well? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Gilles is great. I mean, one thing on a side note with Gilles is he, um, he helped me, or I should say... I helped him actually with uh, just, he, he really ran this, um, we had a coach that passed away on the WTA last year, Kiki Schneider, and he set up a big fundraising uh, campaign for him and that's when I got to know Jules really well and he's a great coach and uh, he's done an unbelievable job with Daniel 
And he's also not afraid to walk off the match. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the we videos. We saw that last, last year at Queen's, Ex I believe. And, and, and I credit both of them because nothing, there was no repercussions from that. He let Daniel know what, how he felt in a match and he wasn't fired. He's continuing to work and they're doing great. Um, I, um, I go through different phases. I, I, I used to write. I try not to do that anymore. Um, elastic bands in my hand a lot when I'm <laughs> watching matches. I, I fidget a lot. A lot of superstitions. Um, try to stay calm on the outside um, for Magda's sake because she's going to go through so many emotions in the match that if I'm doing it as well, um, she needs to know that she can look at me for some calmness. And positivity. And positivity, which... Um, <laughs> which is not always my strength. Um, you can't really be sitting there with your head in your hands, can you? No, I can't. And I have to. And that was definitely a weakness of mine over the years has been it's it's you're so invested and you want it so badly for them. And I think that's one thing I have to be clear about me. It's not about me. It's about her. I just I see how hard she works. I see how much she's put in, how much money she spends, how she she's one of the players that will make money and immediately reinvest it into her business, which is herself. She's not going to take that money and go buy a car. And that's, so you want it so badly for her. And when you see things happening, whether it's a bad call from the referee or something in the stand or something stupid she's done, you, it can be hard to keep that inside. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy. And that's actually where Ian's very good because he's quite mellow and calm and positive. And I'd say I'm probably on the other end of that. <laughs> Mark yeah. Gellard, it's been absolutely fascinating. I've taken a lot of your time. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks so much, Candy. Thanks a lot.